The series is called Let's Go Change the World. You can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. And the sermon today is called Now What? Now, parents, you ever say that? Now what? You ever say that? You ever say that at work? Now you get an email. Now what? So last week, all the apostles got hauled in. They got beaten in front of all the the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the day. So many things have happened already. They had Judas, you know, was a blowout. And he, you know, infiltrated the apostles and caused major trauma in the beginning of the church. Then uh, you had, after that, just one thing after another. You had um, Ananias and Sapphira who were corrupting the church and lying about their offerings. Uh, You had the, the apostles hauled in twice for trials and there, there are growing pains, and now there's something more. There's a conflict and a complaint in the church. And I wonder if the apostles were like, now what? Now what? So the church was just born, and we are tracking here how uh, the church spread around and changed the known world. And what we're going to see today is how the church handled its first uh, serious internal conflict. Now, I wonder if there are folks in here who have been through some church conflicts before, maybe some drama maybe a church split, maybe a fight, maybe a spat, maybe some sort of, there's conflict and complaints in the church. And we're going to see how the church handles that today. There's a church expert named uh, Tom Rayner, and he wrote an article called 25 Silly Things Church Members Have Fought Over. 25, this is, he's a consultant, and so he listed uh, the 25 most surprising things that he's helped churches that we're fighting over. I'll share a few of them. Number one, argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Number six, a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black, brown, two, three, or four drawers. 45 minutes to sort that out. Number 11, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. 13, arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve during the potluck. 14, two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. 15, major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used by the adults for years. 16, argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. (laughs) All in favor? 18, a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing, because luck is not biblical. 21, some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from the rest of them, major church fight and split. Oh my goodness, can churches fight? Yes. So I wish I could promise you that we won't have drama, conflicts, complaints in this church. I can't, or I'd be a false teacher. We will. The question is just how will we respond when legitimate complaints, arguments, problems come to the surface, or illegitimate complaints and arguments get more of a platform than they should really have? How do we even discern uh, between that? Luke is tracking to keep our feet, our toes on the line here. Luke is tracking the redemptive power of the gospel throughout this book in the hearts of the disciples, it's on display. We'll see today more convincing proof that Jesus is risen, the Spirit is among them, the apostles are God's messengers, the Word of God bears divine authority, and the church of God is the redeemed community. And we will learn that because we'll see that healthy community was and is essential to sustained gospel impact. Healthy community was and is essential to sustained gospel impact. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word today. 
Jesus, we pray that you would continue to make us a healthy community. Show us through this early church that handled this so well and so wisely, so humbly, so graciously. Uh, Show us, Lord, how to sustain gospel impact by being a healthy community. Lord, we know that we will have uh, faults. We will have conflicts. We will have complaints, arguments, Lord. We will have differences of opinion. And people will feel strongly about a variety of things. Help us as a church family to be healthy, to be peaceable and considerate, uh, considerate, upright, blameless, and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which we shine like stars in the universe. We pray this because it will only happen by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we are in chapter 6, verse 1. Here we go. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Okay, who's who? Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jewish believers. Greek-speaking, they had adopted the Greek language and the Greek culture because they grew up outside of Jerusalem. So they were living in the Greek culture and the Greek world. They dressed perhaps more like, talked more like, looked more like uh, the Greek world around Israel. Now they're back in Jerusalem, settled back in. Uh, so they were in the minority. But here they are. There was a complaint between them uh, and the Hebrews, which would be those Aramaic-speaking Jews who are more homebred, more devoted to the cultures and customs and language of Moses, and uh, obviously all Jews, all active in the Jewish faith, but they're different. And, and language barriers, as you know, are huge even between people who share much of their history and culture together, right? We know that. Therefore, this is a prime example of how Satan can target a fault line of culture and language, a barrier to create conflict. So there was a complaint by the Hellenists, and they arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Taking care of widows, huge biblical theme, very much on the heart of God. Legitimate complaint if uh, those who are in more of the Greek-speaking camp have widows who are being overlooked. This is also a sin of neglect. Something's not happening that should be happening. It's not like someone's showing up and saying, you're not eating today. It's not active. It's overlooking, which is just as serious to overlook people who you should be taking care of. So there arose a complaint and Uh, The idea here, the word, the idea is there's this grumbling that is now welling up. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So now they're bringing it out into the open. They're all getting together. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So now we have two big problems. One, a grace, a love problem. People aren't being cared for. Two, a truth problem. The word is not going out because of what's going on right here. Okay. Uh, Three, the Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. One of the biggest points of this narrative here is to introduce Stephen, who in the next chapter becomes center stage and uh, his, the power of the gospel flowing through him leads to the first major persecution in the church. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Philip also becomes a key evangelist and figure here. Uh, Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon and Parmenas 
and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Interesting there that this is the first non-Jewish person, a proselyte converted and then came into the Jewish faith, so the first uh, true Gentile here mentioned from Antioch. These are all Greek names, which leads us to believe uh, you know, that they are from this community, right, of the Hellenists, from this community raised up to serve better in that group. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And get this, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Wow, this is the church getting it right. Number one, you can write this down. Every church must resolve conflict in an upright biblical manner. What do we take from this story? Well, every, every church, every church must resolve conflict in an upright biblical manner. We see how it's crucial to gospel impact that healthy community is built. What threatened to divide the church and derail the ministry? Well, there was a lot of growth, a lot of new people around, thousands and thousands of new people, very different, different language. Uh, the Greek-speaking Jews would likely have gone to different synagogues than those who were kind of more of the pure Hebrew uh, Jews, you know, so they not used to worshiping together. This is the first of many times where the gospel is shown to bring different people together. So growing pains, and then there's fault lines of different culture. Um, when it comes to what the church was going to fight about in the New Testament, buckle up. Long, long, long list of church fights coming how the Old Testament laws apply, how weekly worship was supposed to be happening, who should be a leader, moral failures, doctrinal disputes, wolves infiltrating with false teaching, personal quarrels between people who are named in the Bible. These are all on the way. This is their first chance to learn to get along. There will always be trouble in the church. There will always be troublemakers in the church. Sometimes they start young. They start young. I've got a video here, and I want you to try and find the future troublemaker in the church. Go ahead and play that video. Watch carefully. Raise your hand if you found him. There will always be trouble in the church. There will always be troublemakers in the church. And every church must learn to resolve conflict in an upright biblical manner. How? We'll jot this down. We must openly address conflicts and complaints. We must openly address conflicts and complaints. We see here that they brought it into the light. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. Uh, and they, they didn't downplay either part of the problem. So problem, widows were not getting fed. Big, big biblical no-no. Okay, you mess with the widows and God, you know, or those who are uh, poor, those who are in need, uh, the orphans, the widows, the poor, you mess with them, you overlook them, God is coming for you, okay? Big problem. So, so in addition, apostles stop preaching the gospel, stop doing what Jesus personally commissioned them to do. Big, big problem. Two problems, not one, a truth problem and a grace problem. Issues in the church often revolve around truth issues or grace issues, and here they collide, and they could be simultaneously uh, problematic. So they brought it into the light. Bit of a wobbly start. The idea that there was a complaint arising 
Um, seems like it was, it was first spreading privately and it was causing commotion. The apostles had to get everyone together and bring it into the light. Disputes, conflicts, complaints often lurk in the shadows, too often lurk in the shadows, and we are warned in Scripture against whispering and grumbling uh, without finding the proper channel for our concerns. We're warned against that in the Old Testament and in the New. The church will be tempted to complain and grumble. This key temptation is addressed in the entirety of the Bible. So we have to be mindful of addressing things um, openly and honestly. In Philippians 2.14, we'll put it on the screen, it says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So how many things should we do with grumbling or disputing? This many. So there's this many things that should be done with grumbling or disputing, and um, we should do all things without grumbling and disputing. James 5.9 says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Judgments on grumbling throughout the Bible. Some are severe. Uh, some are severe. Aaron and Miriam, of course, grumbling, complaining about Moses, and uh, she was struck with leprosy. Very severe. It had to be dealt with openly, uh, and God waited in, came in, and helped them with that. How are we doing it? Openly addressing our concerns and complaints. The complaints, grumbling, often tied to change. It's hard to change. People don't like change. Sometimes churches have to change um, because times are changing, people are changing, generations are growing up, so things like music, technology will change. So there could be big fights over, why are we using the overhead projector screens? You know, look new, and we should just use the hymnals, right? There were the worship wars that were many years ago. Uh, types of music are often very controversial. And then there are things that shouldn't change, like sound, orthodox, doctrine, and suddenly you have teachers who are rethinking things that have been nailed down for centuries, and these things shouldn't change, but suddenly they are. So we have to be careful. Sometimes things have to change to be good, effective, bold witnesses in the community and to reach the next generation, and people want to pull that parking brake and stop the change, and often they're motivated selfishly to keep things the way they prefer it. Other times things shouldn't change and doctrine is suddenly blowing out of control and it's right for people to pull the parking brake there and say, hey, listen, this is a real danger of us becoming an apostate church if we let go of sound doctrine. So change is often tied into conflicts, complaints within a church. Very often it's just preferences. People have a certain way they like things to be and when it's not their way, then they don't like it and so then they uh, try to get their way. Oftentimes there are very legitimate concerns like here where there's a problem that's going overlooked that's not being taken care of and somebody has to come and say this needs attention and the church has to work together to fix the problem. So there's a variety of things that cause conflicts and complaints but it, it has to be driven to a redemptive source always. Uh, I was on the phone over a year ago with our attorney, we were making some policy changes to some of our manuals and things, so I needed some advice. Uh, and and uh, he said, hey, listen, I just want you to know, uh, he said, every single church I work with has big stuff happening in the church. He said, I'm on the phone with all of them. He said, be careful. He said, go through this together. Resolve, my, our attorney, our church attorney is telling me this, Okay. Christian guy. And he's like, there's a lot going on in the church, every church. He said, so work through it. 
And I was like, check. If the attorney is telling us to be careful to work through stuff because there's so many conflicts and complaints in the church right now, I'm listening. So it happens in every church. And we must openly address conflicts and complaints. And we must avoid grumbling. Jot this down. We must see the danger and the opportunity. Both the danger and the opportunity. Sometimes you only see the danger. And people are like, stop it, stop it. You know, we're, you know and, and they don't see the opportunity that there's something that actually needs to get solved. Sometimes they only see the opportunity. Well, let's listen to all of these different things that people are saying, and maybe there's something to it. And then suddenly there's just a lot of nonsense that is not actually being corrected in a biblical manner because they don't see the danger. We have to see the danger, and we have to see the opportunity. Wow, we have to be so careful how we handle this because it impacts the mission. And wow, we have to be so careful to mind how we are taking care of the truth and the grace in the church. We have to be so careful. Do you know this could have ended so, so, so badly in the early church? Don't you feel like it should have ended a lot worse than it was? Don't you feel like this should have been like a bloodbath here? Based on who the apostles were before Jesus transformed them, uh, how could it have ended? It, I mean, ego ego. Leave us alone. We have such bigger things to handle than this. Food? We're writing the Bible. You go figure this out. This is beneath us. Ego. Did the disciples struggle with ego? Which one of us is going to be the best, right? Now it's like tables need to get weighted. Widows need to get some bread. Ego could have ruined the church. They could have been unloving by saying this is not our problem. Okay, they didn't do that. Uh, They could have also reflected their ego by putting themselves in charge of everything. Okay, well, we'll get on top of it. We're going to come up with an apostle meal train. It's going to be uber apostle, and we will show up at your door with your meal every day, and you're going here, and I'm going here, and you're going here, and I'm going there. Here we come. They're doing everything. Uh, That's ego. Okay, that's the Moses plan. Everyone form a single file line in front of Moses, right? Remember? And then his father-in-law had to show up and break that whole thing apart. You're wearing yourself out and those who are waiting for you. Uh, That's a form of pride and unbelief, by the way, when you won't raise other people up. Who can do it like me, right? It's very proud to think you're the only one who can do it. So ego could have won the day. It didn't. It could have been unloving. Um, The people who were overlooked could have been hurt and could have said, we're leaving. Clearly you don't care about us, and we're not going to stay around for this any longer. You ruined it. You blew it. We're out of here. Bye. And there could have been no opportunity to heal that wound because they weren't taken care of. So they could have just closed their hearts and let you don't care about people, and so we're leaving. That's a form of pride, too, because they won't stay to reconcile things. They would rather leave with their hurt. Uh, greed could have won the day here. These, where did the money come from f- to take care of the need? Well, the wealthy people were selling land and giving. Some of these people who came from the surrounding regions likely had a lot of money. And here they were giving. They were selling and giving tons of money to the church. I sold a field for this. I gave. And now my widows aren't even being cared. I can't believe the stewardship that's going on here. We're leaving. Greed. Greed could have won the day. Jealousy. 
right? Jealousy. Who are they to tell us how the money should be split? They're going to, they, Stephen, Philip, they're going to now tell us how to divvy this, this money that we gave up. What? We don't need them. Isn't this how it went in the Old Testament? Who put Moses in charge? We could all be in charge. Do you see how this should have, could have recurred? This new generation of leaders could have been like, forget them. We're going to do it our way. So many ways this could have gone wrong. It could have cracked the church in half, split it right down the middle. A schism like this could have split the church for a very long time. We know now how splits can last for hundreds and hundreds of years. This was a prime opportunity to put a wedge right there. Thankfully, it didn't happen that way. Do we see the danger? Do we see the opportunity? Are we openly addressing things? I was talking to a guy at breakfast recently. He's like, how do we handle conflict complaints in the church? I said, that's a great question. First of all, we always tell people to bring it into the light and to go to the source of the person that they have an issue with. Okay? That is one biblical way to handle it. The only other second way to handle it is you cover it over in love and you stop talking about it to other people. Okay? Those are the only two ways. There is no third way. So either you're about to go to the person and you're just getting help and you're going to get ready to do it in a loving and gracious way or you're going to cover it over in love and stop talking about it. Those are the only two ways to handle it. There is no third way uh, where you keep going on and on and on and on and on about it without any redemptive outlet. We actually have a member's covenant too that we signed where we say we are going to handle conflict and concerns and complaints in an upright biblical manner. And so those are the ways that we handle it. So the question is, do we see the danger? Do we see the opportunity? And are we openly addressing things as a church. Number one, every church must resolve conflict in an upright biblical manner. Number two, jot this down, church leaders must understand and solve problems. Church leaders must understand and solve problems. So how did the church handle it? How did the people respond to their efforts? Well, they were gracious and yet firm and decisive, and they were collaborative. So reading on, it says, therefore, well, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, says, not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering. So they understood and they solved the problem. They resolved it in an upright biblical manner. They openly brought it into the light. They saw the danger and the opportunity, and they understood the problem, and they worked to solve it. Jot this down. We have to clearly define the issues and the emotions. We have to clearly define the issues and the emotions. They defined both. They said, you know, look, the waiting of the tables is obviously very important. We need to raise people up to do that, but the proclamation of the truth is important as well. So they clearly defined the problem and they were aware of the emotions that were involved as well. So the love problem here and the truth problem here were both defined and they were proposing a solution for both. In our church, we will have both as well. We'll have to sort through care problems together. Is this person being taken care of? Is this group being overlooked? We call that on staff care traffic control. Care traffic control. Who's in the hospital? Uh, who's hurt? Uh, what relationships need some attention. Each week at our staff meeting, we have a list of people who we're praying for. We're just checking in with them. And so we call that care traffic control. And then when we start wading into a situation, we have to figure out 
what is going on here? We have to clearly define the problem. We use a tool called the SOS tool, and that it, it stands for Severity Ownership Support. Severity Ownership Support. What's the severity here? What's the level of ownership the person is demonstrating, and what's the level of support they have or they are willing to take on? And then there's like a number you attach to each one. So if a couple comes in and says, we're having trouble in our home uh, with our family, uh, we'll meet with them and we'll just start unpacking things. And we'll say, okay, well, severity, it sounds like you guys have stuff going on, but this is like a three, you know, like maybe a four, uh, not a nine or an eight. So that's good news. Ownership, sounds like you're getting on top of it. You know, sounds like you've got some good, you're reading a book about it and, you know, you're demonstrating ownership of the problem uh, and you've got some support lined up, including coming in. That's good. Other times people come in and, you know, there might be a situation where in a marriage it's like, uh, one person feels like this is an eight, and the other person feels like this is a two. And we have to start figuring out what is the true severity of what's going on in the situation. Sometimes people will uh, have an issue with something in the church, and they want to talk, and it's, they think it's a seven, and it might be a three, and we have to talk through, well, what makes you feel like this is so severe? We try and work through and truly find an understanding on what is the true severity of this, what level of ownership have you and have we demonstrated toward the problem? And then what support can we bring in uh, to get some help? Sometimes you need support outside the church to solve some problems. There needs to be a professional counselor or organization involved to help a family, to help a person, to help a teenager, to help a church even, to get some extra help with the problem. These are the many ways that we try and own issues, sort through them. I, I call it flipping the hamper. Okay, let's figure out what's going on. Let's flip the hamper. And then you sort through the issues. And it takes time. What's going on? What happened here? What, why are you upset? You sort it all out, and then you figure out, okay, what's the severity? What's the level of ownership here? And what is the level of support? We can work through anything together. You can work through anything in your home, in your family, in your marriage. If you're willing to gauge this, the severity and own it and then get some support, uh, we try and right-size the situation. In our church as well, sometimes we overlook things and it's like, wow, this is a big deal. We gotta, we gotta get a solution for this. We gotta figure this out. And other times it's like, okay, look, it seems like this is really being overblown here unless we're missing something. So let's just calm down about this. So what's happening is we're clearly defining the issues and the emotions involved. That's what they were doing here. Jot this down. We must embrace an orderly path to resolution. We must embrace an orderly path to resolution. They were very orderly, they were working toward resolution, uh, and everyone was on the same page here. Everybody humbly worked together in an orderly manner. They also respected the authority of the apostles while, they, while the apostles were working to understand the hearts of the people. Um, and so it's really a great thing to behold here. The 12 summoned the full number. They said, we have an issue because we've got to fulfill the truth of getting the word out. And then they have the issue because of the widows. And in verse 4, it's clear what the apostles are supposed to be devoted to, prayer and the ministry of the word. What does that mean? Well, prayer is a catch-all word. They were praying in houses. That's where the room was shaken. So the community is a community of prayer. They were no doubt praying individually. They were also praying with people. The temple had the time of prayer, which is when most people would gather. So, so you know, small group, medium group, big group, they're talking about their ministry to the people, the word, the worship, the prayer time. That's getting now overlooked because the widows are getting overlooked. So they're embracing an orderly path to resolve both problems. We have to do that as well. We have to do that as well. 
Uh, as we have our fair share of conflict and complaints in the church, we have to make sure that we embrace an orderly path toward resolution. Uh, there's, there's a joy in, in the tension of sitting down and working through some things when you come to a mutual solution and you see a path forward. There's a joy to that. Uh, there's a grace that God supplies to that. And when people mess up, you know, uh, when you are, are given a chance to apologize, when you're given a chance to see your error, when you're given a chance to smooth things over, there's a great joy in that. And there is a stronger relationship waiting on the other side of that. Um, on the flip side, there's also anguish when there's failed resolution efforts and people dig in their heels on a very selfish situation or they refuse to hear the other side. There's anguish that comes when they won't even meet and talk to the other person. Uh, there's a lot of anguish that comes. And then sometimes when people become outright wicked during situations like this, they can do tremendous damage to the gospel and the witness. So we have to embrace an orderly path to resolution. We have to resolve conflict in an upright biblical manner and redirect complaints uh, to those who are directly involved. All right, so number one, every church must resolve conflict in an upright biblical manner. Number two, church leaders must understand and solve problems. Number three, we must appoint qualified spiritual leaders, qualified spiritual leaders. So what else do we observe here with how they solve this problem? It says, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose. Then they list these. These are really the first deacons. It doesn't, it doesn't specifically say here, we are going to start an office in the church called deacon, and we are going to call these people deacons, and, but this is the dawn of the deacons. Okay, very clearly their role. Um, the reason why people are reluctant to say the, this is exactly where deaconing started is because um, it wasn't official, like the word deacon is actually more of a generic word used for a variety of services. We lift the word deacon straight out of the Greek, um, but this is absolutely the dawn of deacon ministry. They are serving the needs of the needy in the church to free the apostles to do the work of, uh, of the word. The, this is also apostles, not local church elders. So as Acts continues to roll out, you will see this model of elders taking from the apostles the primary ministry of the word and deacons being installed in each church like this to take the spirit of care for those in the congregation. You will see that becoming the standard governing model in all the churches. So this is the dawn of the deacons. And leaders must entrust ministry to other godly leaders. Sets the table for deacons to become standard um, in all the churches. I can brag on our deacons in our church. I hope you've had the chance to be ministered to by them, but they've had a few opportunities just over the last year to really rise up and bring tremendous care to people who were in tremendous need in the church. They showed up, assessed the situation. In some situations, it required a force of people to come and offer some help, like, like full-on project management stuff. And I would get the call hearing already what was going on, and I was like, this is amazing. It, the, the plan is there. The people are there. Uh, that is truly incredible. So our deacons are doing a phenomenal job caring for those who are in need, and I hope that you are uh, encouraging them as well for, uh, for what they're doing in the church. So we have to appoint qualified spiritual leaders. What does it mean to be a qualified spiritual leader? Listen carefully 
to what it says here about these people. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Then it goes on to say, uh, it goes on to say in verse 8, Stephen was full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So he was full of the Spirit in a way that reflected the very wonders that the apostles themselves were doing, which was truly incredible. So these people are supposed to have a good reputation. It says in verse 3, good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And these are qualifications of spiritual leadership. So jot this down. Qualified spiritual leaders have a good reputation inside and outside of the church. Inside and outside of the church. They're living a consistent standard of life. They're not hypocrites. They're not obviously worldly or weak. Now, every leader is sinful, needs the grace of Christ like everybody else. But when you're kind of, you know, interviewing a spiritual leader, and it's kind of known outside the church that it's like you mention the person's name, Paul, and like the eyebrows go up like, huh? Huh? Him? Him? There's a different Paul outside the church than there is inside the church. If a person doesn't have a good reputation among outsiders, that's a red flag. And then inside the church, you know, you sit down, well, you know, we're looking for new leaders, maybe small group leaders, maybe this. What do you think about this person? It's like, ah, uh, you should know some things. Bad reputation, right? Bad reputation. Um, this doesn't mean that people are nitpicking at this person. This means that there's just some glaring, obvious red or yellow flags in the person's life, and they don't yet have that good reputation of living a consistent life of biblical virtue. That's what this means. Uh, there's a variety of reasons why people without a good reputation would be, would be appointed into leadership. Desperation, or maybe they have some gifts that are valuable to the church, so it's like, well, who, know who cares? That's just the way he is, and we'll put him in that position, right? He'll get things done. Well, no, that, there has to be this standard of a good reputation inside and outside of the church. Jot this down, are full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. That means they are obviously saved, right? Obviously saved. So when it comes to like serving in the church, leading in the church, some churches have a policy where they kind of want to do outreach and they'll put non-Christians in many positions throughout the church, maybe even leading. Um, but that could be a mistake because you want people full of the Spirit to be leading and serving in the church. That means they have to be saved. Obviously saved. The word disciple is used here in Acts for the first time. And being a disciple means you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to, uh, looking like, learning from, living for Him is what it means to be a disciple. So you're picking from among the disciples. That might seem like a no-brainer to you, but in some churches that is not a given. So you have people who are obviously saved. It also means they're gifted to serve. So the Holy Spirit saves us through the washing of rebirth, the regeneration, right? The Holy Spirit also unites us to the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit also gifts us for service. So ideally, you have the ability to serve Christ in a specific way. The Spirit is working through you. Spiritual gifts are given to bless others, uh, not to indulge yourself. And so your spiritual gift is meant to build up the body of Christ. That's evidence the Spirit is in you. You're also bearing fruit. You know the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things are abounding. You're like a tree with those things, and the tree is tipping because there's so much fruit of the Spirit. There's also fruit of worldliness listed in the Bible, and those are not the fruit that everyone is seeing in your life predominantly. 
So there's the fruit check as well. You see here that it is, uh, you know, obviously we know in Scripture that let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but boast of what? That he knows me, right? That he knows me. The things that are commendable in spiritual leaders are not the worldly gifts. So this isn't just a talented woman or someone who's an influencer. This just isn't just somebody who can get things done. This is a person who is full of the Spirit of God. Full of the Spirit. Jot this down. Wise in counsel and life. Wise in counsel in life. This, of course, means they have a great handle on God's Word. Uh, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Out of their relationship with God, they have learned a mastery of His Word in a way where they can sit with a hundred people with a thousand problems and bring some guiding light to that person. Wisdom from the Scripture. Uh, are they wise in counsel and in life? They are, they are living it. Their life is not just full of folly and rebellion. Uh, their life is not just full of failure. Their life um, is full of wisdom. Their counsel is reliable. The church is responsible to install godly leaders. And we see here that the apostles got it right. They involved, hey, look, all right, in your community, um, Look, there's, there's like 10,000-ish people here, okay? So the apostles couldn't just be like, um, we will collect applications and resumes and start sorting through them. It's like, okay, you probably know in your community who the guys are who have a reputation for being godly. So go ahead and, you know, appoint some of them from among yourself. Bring them to us. We will lay hands on them. They got it right. They picked the right people. Um, and this is a win, As a church, we have to appoint godly leaders, right? We have to install godly deacons and elders and pastors and small group leaders. That's our responsibility. And if we don't, it's your responsibility to be like, hey, there's a biblical standard that's not being followed here, right? We got to get this under control. I will say this, um, whenever we've had a leadership issue in our church where there is the biblical standard for leadership and there is a leader who is Uh, having a hard time meeting that standard, who cannot or will not, will not meet the biblical standard, we have paid as a church a very, very high price to say we will not lower the bar for spiritual leaders in this church. We will move heaven and earth to help you get to that place of qualification and integrity, but we will not lower the bar. And each time when it was, well, either this is who I am and you, or, or whatever, we have paid a very heavy price for saying, this is the standard for leaders in our church, and we need you to be at this level. Um, so we have to continue to do that. So we must appoint qualified spiritual leaders who have a good reputation, are full of the Holy Spirit, wise in counsel and life. The church is responsible to install the godly leaders, and then God's people are responsible to respond with love and submission to their authority. And the people did it. The people weren't like, I don't know about that. I need to get to know this guy a bit better. You know, he, he, the people were ready to follow their lead. They were like, yes, this is going to please the people to have these leaders that they were ready to follow. The apostles, they were following the lead of the apostles, which was so precious. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, we'll put it up on the screen. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love. Did you hear that? 
How should we feel about our leaders, our elders, our deacons, our pastors here? We should esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. Okay, so number one, every church must resolve conflict in an upright biblical manner. Two, church leaders must understand and solve problems. Three, we must appoint qualified spiritual leaders. And number four, finally, we must prayerfully proclaim the gospel to all. Prayerfully proclaim the gospel to all. What was the outcome? What was the reason for this test? What was the result of the solution? Well, this is what's so awesome. The, the loving community they were forming gives us great evidence that the gospel is true. Look at the Spirit unifying them. Let it be done here. They were becoming a community that's persuading everyone that the gospel is true. Wow, look at how they're loving each other. And they were becoming a community that proclaimed the truth and all these priests got saved. Look at how they're declaring the truth. The love and the truth were both surging ahead. We must prayerfully proclaim the gospel uh, to all. That's what the apostles wanted to keep going. It says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is a success story. If we can do it, if we can work through things, if we can get to the heart of it, if we can figure out how to solve it, if we can stay together in loving community and keep proclaiming the word, we can surge ahead. But if we get bogged down, if we get divided, if we get stuck, if we get, you know, it, the work can come to a stop and people then won't be reached with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. What a success story. Through the word of God and the spirit of God, this diverse group was brought together. They were unified. They followed the apostles. They raised up new leaders and Christ himself in heaven was manifesting his presence on earth through everything that was going on here. This, I don't know when you think of church, when you open the file of church and what you've seen and been through and heard in the past, I don't know if you open it up and you're like, <gasps> close it. <gasps> Look, all I'll say is this, go all the way back to the source. This is what it was meant to be. This is what it could be. This is what we're building here. Healthy, spiritual community that's going out with the life-changing message of the gospel. That's what we're building. That's where it started. That's where it needs to continue. We can go change the world. That's what the series is all about. If we follow their example and embrace the gospel imperative in our hearts and in our church, become a healthy spiritual community, and understand that sustained gospel impact requires protecting healthy community. Well, I feel like at the end of this sermon, we should just turn all this over to the Lord and ask him to make us a community full of healthy, loving, truthful individuals who are set to bringing the gospel to all those around us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer together right now. Father, we thank you that while there are many failure stories in the Bible, this is a success. Thank you that the early church saw the danger. They didn't downplay it. I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit's work in the apostles so that they didn't become egomaniacs, 
who started stomping on the hearts of everyone around them. Lord, I'm so thankful that that there were godly men willing to step up and say, give us more, give us more, we'll take it. Put us in charge. And one of those men will pay with his life in the next chapter. Lord, give us men like that. Men willing to lead the way, to sacrifice and serve other people, even if it means waiting tables. Lord, give us people like that. Pray that you would help us to keep that challenging balance of focusing on the truth and focusing on the grace at the same time. So hard to do both well. But I pray that by your spirit we would find a way. Lord, as things come into the light, we pray that you would help us to work through things. We can work through anything together in a godly, upright, biblical manner. And Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for where we've gone wrong, the people we've overlooked, the conflicts that didn't get resolved, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, because we know we've grieved you in this area. And we pray that you would continue to make this a strength in our church, that we might be united, steadfast, devoted to showing the love and sharing the truth of Christ with everyone. And may we see a great impact in the hearts of those all around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.